You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Good evening, church. Glad to be in the house of the Lord again, again, uh, in an online setting. Of course, this is, as we say every week, this is not the norm. Don't get used to it. Our desire is to eventually get back together and worship in the house of the Lord in person. Of course, that requires that we need to be praying. We need to be praying that that this pandemic would uh, go away and that people would be healed from this virus and also that the government would bow the knee to Christ and fear the Lord in their decision-making in regards to uh, this pandemic. So keep those things in prayer. I know that we're praying for it. We have family members, uh, church family members who who are, have been impacted by this virus, and we want to keep them in prayer, surround them in uh, love as a church. In addition to this, I want to say a happy, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in our congregation who are watching this right now, uh, all the uh, the actual mothers and the spiritual mothers. Thank you so much for the many ways that you bless and influence uh, your children and even those who aren't your children and who uh, uphold a, a godly image of, of what a woman of God looks like. I have three special mothers in my life. Of course, my mom and uh, Faye's mom and also Faye, the mother of my children. And I just want to say I love you all very much and happy Mother's Day in advance. Now, all of that aside, we have your Bibles. We'll get into our passage tonight. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to grab your Bibles. Make sure that you have it on your lap as, we, uh, as, as you follow along uh, in our reading tonight. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we're going to start from where we left off last week, verse 13, and we're going to go to verse 22. Please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word. Hopefully you have your Bibles by now. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, holy God, we just declare your praises, O oh God. Hallowed be your name, O oh Lord, amongst your people this evening and wherever your word goes out. O oh Lord, we recognize that you are king over this entire world, over this entire universe. And right now, God, we want to lift up, Lord, our world to you and the current crisis, this pandemic that has been impacting many lives and and where many lives have been lost to. 
God, we pray for those who are sick. We ask that your hand of mercy would be upon them. God, you are the great physician, and we know that you can heal. And so, God, we ask for healing amongst our people, amongst our land, oh God, amongst the world. We ask, oh God, for the fear of you would, would plague and invade the hearts of the governors, the statesmen, the politicians, those who are the leaders of our countries, that they might see this time as a time to awaken to your truth and awaken to the fear of you. God, I pray that you would make yourself known amongst your people. God, we also want to thank you, Lord, for the many mothers out there who have cared for us, who have brought us up in the fear and knowledge of you, who constantly demonstrate your love to us. We ask that you'd bless them, oh Lord. And God, as we enter into your presence to hear from your word and to know your truth, I pray that you would have our hearts be good soil, that, God, we would hear from you, that we would be convicted where we have gone astray, and that, God, our hearts and our minds would be all focused on you in this, in this short amount of time that we have. Lord, be praised amongst your people this evening. I pray that you would use me as your instrument of peace, I pray. In Jesus, your mighty name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated but before you get, you know, closing your Bibles, tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Final Sign, The Final Sign. Back in my day, when we used to, were allowed to go and travel and leave our houses, uh, you know, something that my family loved to do was go and uh, do road trips whether it be Montreal or Blue Mountain or Sable Beach up north. Road trips were fun, something that was looked forward to. We have this family tradition that whenever we go on these road trips, we would stop by uh, an Arby's and buy their curly fries. It's kind of like a, again, like I said, a, fa a family tradition. I insist on it. My wife thinks it's, it's not a family tradition. Uh, but probably one of the most visited places that my family would go to and I'm sure for many families, is Niagara Falls. If you've, if, if you've ever driven down there, you probably know that it's a pretty straightforward drive up until you get close to the falls. It gets a little tricky towards the end because you need to get off at the right exit or you end up driving to the border and there's no turning around. You have to deal with customs and, and all of that. But fortunately, there are signs that let you know in advance when you're approaching the border. Right, border in 10 kilometers, border in 5 kilometers. This is, and then finally, before it's too late, this is the last exit before the border. They put it up all these signs so you won't miss it. And if you miss it, it's your own fault. It's your, you have no excuse. Now, similarly, our passage in John tonight deals with the final sign that points to the divinity of Christ. Remember John's objective in this entire gospel of his. Right? He, he writes in John 20, verse 31, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or the Messiah, rather, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Now, on one hand, John is trying to convince his readers to believe in Christ. And, and on the other hand, he's giving evidence and testimonies for the divinity and messiahship of Christ. And one of the ways that he does this, if you recall uh, a couple of sermons before, is giving specific signs 
that Jesus performed throughout his uh, ministry that points to his divinity. Remember, a sign, simeon in the Greek, was an act or an event, oftentimes miraculous, given to confirm or corroborate or authenticate the Messiahship or the divinity of Christ. At the start of this chapter, in chapter 2 of John, we read about the wedding in Cana and Jesus turning water into wine and how this was a sign of his divinity, his design, and his ultimate destination to the cross. If you missed that sermon, you can look back in our podcast. And in, even in verse 11 of John chapter 2, it says, this is uh, the, the, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. This This miracle at the wedding was the first sign that Jesus publicly performs in his earthly ministry to communicate his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Now, if you remember in in that sermon, there are seven specific signs that John records in his gospel, seven public signs, miracles that point to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, a couple of days after the sign at Cana, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem at the Passover, for the Passover. Now, if you remember from our, uh, from our pastors last week and our sermon last week, he drives out all the vendors and animals from the temple for, for desecrating the house of God. And where our passage picks up from tonight is the response of the religious leaders after Jesus clears out that temple. So let's jump straight into our passage tonight. Everyone say jump. Go to verse 18 of our passage. These people are trying to make me laugh here tonight. Uh, Verse 18 of our passage says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Remember, whenever John refers to the Jews in his gospel, he's not referring to the Jewish people as a nation. He's referring to specific, the, the specific religious elites of his day, the Sanhedrin, those who make up the, the sort of the religious uh, society, the religious caste of, of Jewish, Jewish society. That was the high priests, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests and the Levites, the scribes. We read in John chapter 1 how the Jews, same context here, sends even Levites and priests to John the Baptist to question him. And so now Jesus is at their head office at the temple of Jerusalem during the most celebrated time of the year, the Passover. And he's flipping tables and messing up their operations. So the Jews, these religious elites, these religious leaders are asking for identification now. They're asking for a sign that would indicate who Jesus was and his authority for cleaning out the temple. They, they were basically saying, who are you for turning over these tables? Who, who sent you? Who, why do you have the right to mess up our business? Show us proof of your authority. Now, this is interesting because, remember, Jesus just cleared out the temple from all the vendors and all the animals that were desecrating it. He cleared out the the. The, the mess that was in the temple courts. So you'd think the religious leaders would be happy now because now they can get back on track to some sincere worship, some authentic worship. But instead, these religious authorities are not having it. They, they want proof of Jesus' authority. This is the first indication of their hearts being hardened and not seeing or even connecting the dots as to who Jesus was and what he was doing at the temple. So they ask for this sign of his authority. And then Jesus replies to them in verse 19. It says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
Now, this statement will actually go viral back in Jesus' day. For the rest of his ministry, people will associate this statement with Christ. Hey, hey this is the guy who said he would, he would tear down the temple and then bring it back up in three days. If you remember at the end of his ministry, after he's been betrayed and he goes to this mock trial before the Sanhedrin, these, these, these religious elites, these same ones, bring false witnesses, false accusations to Christ. Um, check out Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 57 here. Mark chapter 14, verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not, with, not made with hands. Now, notice how this wasn't what Jesus actually said. If you ever played that game Broken Telephone as a kid, this is the Broken Telephone version of what Jesus said at the temple this day. After being spread across the people and after three years of ministry, this is what they got from what Jesus said. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Turn into destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another without hands. Now, of course, this statement doesn't sit well with the religious elites. This temple was a sign of their authority. And Jesus had just posed a threat towards it. And naturally, there's uh, some skepticism and resistance uh, as a reaction to this. Verse 20, the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They are referring to the timeline that it it took to rebuild the second temple after the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 BC. Of course, Jesus wasn't talking about the actual temple. He was talking about himself. Verse 21, it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is referring to the last sign in his earthly ministry, his death and resurrection. John even says in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here we have, in, just in the second chapter of John's gospel, the apostle calls, or recalls the first public miracle in Cana that Jesus performs. Then a couple of days after that, Jesus proclaims his last and final miracle, or greatest sign, his resurrection and, uh, from the dead. All of this at the start of his ministry. Now, this is so very important because this final sign that Jesus talks about here is what will ultimately separate those who believe in Christ and those who don't. The the miracle of the resurrection is at the crux of Christianity and without it everything else falls apart. Everything else that we believe falls apart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, verse 14 to 19 and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life alone, or in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, Paul says our faith is in vain. Our our, our faith is futile. 
I'm preaching for no reason this evening. We're we're making all this effort to, to gather online for no reason. Without the resurrection, we don't have the hope of, our, of seeing our dead loved ones in the faith. Without the resurrection, Jesus is only a good moral teacher, an example of how to live a good and perfect life, but nothing more. Not a living hope, not a king who is coming, not a mediator in the heavenly places, and certainly not a savior. This is why Paul says in that passage that we just read, if Christ was not raised, you would still be in your sin. Understand that everything else that Jesus does during his his three-year ministry on earth, all the miracles, all the teachings, the helping those in need, and everything he does spiritually for us, even on the cross by his death, all of it hinges on the fulfillment of this final sign, his resurrection. Without it, he would just be another good teacher who died. He would just be another Muhammad. Another uh, Buddha, another uh, guru from Sikhism, just another founder of a world religion or a cult. He would just be another religious leader who taught humanist ideas and died without the resurrection. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ that is at the foundation of our faith is only validated if he fulfills this final sign. And like I said, our belief in this final sign is what separates us from the rest of this of the world and 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 the unbelievers of this world and and all the other religions of this world belief in this final sign in the resurrection separates us from identifying as a believer in Christ or an unbeliever Romans chapter 10 verse 9 it says this very clear because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved The resurrection is at the crux of our faith and salvation. Without it in our belief system, we have no right calling ourselves a Christian. Now you might be wondering, why is Pastor Ian talking about this? Well, in my research for this sermon, I found some very interesting and shocking statistics. A survey done in 2020, just this past year, by LifeWay Research, an evangelical research organization, found that only 66% of American Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 66%. That's like there's 10 of us here right now. So only six of us here believe in the resurrection of Christ. The other four don't believe. In fact, it says 20%. Uh, of, from that 66%, 20%, or, or, or rather the other percentage, 20% disagree with the account of the Bible of the resurrection, while 14% are undecided. These are Christians who attend church, according to our research, at least twice a month, at least half the time, and it, and it gets worse, worse. Of the people who believe in the resurrection, that's from that 66%, only 48% believe in the biblical account of the resurrection. The rest believe in some far-fetched theory of some rational explanation or scientific explanation of how Jesus possibly could have raised from the dead and his disciples brought him back to life or all this nonsense. These statistics are shocking and heartbreaking. So please hear me, church. These are not my words. These are God's words. Unless you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as told, as described by God's holy word, you really have no reason to call yourself a Christian. 
Again, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, Cardia, that's the Greek word there for heart. It's the effective center of our being, that which produces and desires and, and, and makes decisions and produces who we are. If you don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you're not saved. This final sign is at the crux of our faith, and without it, our faith is in vain. So tonight, I want to stress the importance of this final sign and, and expound on the idea of why the resurrection is so crucial of, to our faith. Because let me tell you, church, it, it makes a world of a difference if Christ was not raised. It makes a difference in how we live and how we hope and, and what we look forward to and, and how we live out our Christian lives and what we believe. And my hope tonight is that by showing you, church, what the resurrection accomplishes, that you would be truly reminded of the living hope that we have in Jesus and the confidence we can have in this life and in the next because our Savior lives. So what does the resurrection accomplish exactly? Why must we believe in the resurrection? Well, firstly, the resurrection proclaims God's sovereignty. The resurrection proclaims God's sovereignty. Remember what these religious leaders were looking for, or what they were asking Jesus for. Give us a sign of your authority. Show us proof of your authority. So what greater sign is there to prove the authority that Jesus had than to demonstrate that he is the sovereign God? What higher authority is there than the God who commands over uh, everything, even death itself? Remember what John states at the beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. John will also say in John 5, 26, the Father has life in himself. The Son also has life in himself. The Greek word that John uses here is, again, not the typical word for life, bios, describing just the physical sense of life, but rather John uses the word zoe, the grander term for all kinds of life, natural life, spiritual life, even eternal life. And why John uses this term, it, he uses this term to say life was in Christ. Or rather, life finds its source in Christ. He is the author of life. The one where life finds its source. He doesn't find the source of his life in something outside of himself. Nothing sustains his life. He wasn't given life. He doesn't receive life. Nor was he brought into life. We talked about this back in chapter 1. This is talking about the self-existence of Christ. He possesses life as an essential part of his nature, of his being. In him was life. This is why the resurrection is made possible. Why Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. Notice even our passage tonight. What, what, what the final sign is, what Jesus says, is what the sign that he gives the, the religious elites. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is the sovereign God talking here. The God who is in control of life and death itself. See, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, how much authority would he have? Zero. No authority, no credibility to claim such promises. No authority to command life or, or death. Nothing. No authority whatsoever. If Jesus did not rise, it would mean that he was not God. 
Or at the very least, it would mean that we worship a very impotent God, unable to raise even his own son from the grave. And that is not a God that we should worship or serve. Without the the resurrection of Christ, it would make his claims, it it would make his claims to divinity uh, false. It would make him a liar. This is essentially what C.S. Lewis argues about what he calls the, the trilemma. Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? And paraphrasing here, Lewis essentially says that no one can claim that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. Jesus makes blatant claims that he was God. If he did not rise from the grave, that would make him a liar. Therefore, he can't be merely a good moral teacher because good moral teachers do not lie. It must mean that then that Jesus is a madman, a lunatic, someone who akin to claiming that they are something that they are not. Yet what we see in scripture is someone who functions with reason and compassion and grace and fortitude, not insane at all. So the conclusion is this. If Christ is not a liar and he shows no sign of lunacy, then his claims to divinity must be true and he must be Lord. And the ultimate evidence of this is the claims to resurrection. Jesus was in fact raised from the dead and it validates all his claims as the son of God, equal with God, as having been sent by God with the authority of God. It validates all of chapter 1 of John's gospel that Christ is eternal, pre-existent, equal with God, co-existent, and independent of any life source outside of himself, self-existent. The religious leaders wanted a sign of his authority. Christ gave them the ultimate and final sign, his resurrection that denotes his divinity of the sovereign God. The resurrection proclaims God's sovereignty. It identifies the authority of Christ over death. Secondly, the resurrection points to God's scripture. The resurrection points to God's scripture. Look at verse 22 of our passage this evening. It says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples connected the dots of the resurrection to scripture. It caused them to believe in God's word all the more. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to God's holy word. And validates it by fulfilling the prophecies concerning the Messiah rising from the grave according to God's word. In Isaiah 53... It says, that, you know, that famous suffering servant passage written over 700 years before Christ. After Isaiah says that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah says in chapter, or, or, or Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put him, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is talking about the Messiah's death and suffering. But then right after this, see how the tone changes. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him the portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The tone shifts in Isaiah's passage here to that of death from death to life. And, and, and promise a life beyond the suffering of his death, beyond the suffering servant to this, to this person who is now alive and flourishing and benefiting from the sacrifice. The Messiah will see his offspring, talking about the fruit of his sacrifice. His days will be prolonged, it says. God divides a portion of him with the many, among the living. How does this happen with a dead man? Only by the means of resurrection. The Old Testament even predicts the timeline of his resurrection. Get this, Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he may, that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And then verse 2, it says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. These are verses, prophecies, taken hundreds of years before Christ's death. There are hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Over 350 of them were fulfilled in Jesus' three-year ministry. But there are many more prophecies that Christ is intended to fulfill on his return, on his second coming. But he cannot fulfill those unless he was indeed raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus corroborates scripture. If Christ did not rise from the grave, it would mean that he did not fulfill the prophecies about him in the Old Testament. And it would falsify scripture and also make God a liar. And let me tell you, God is not a liar. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Without the resurrection, the Bible would hold no authority. Same, same argument as earlier. It would just be a good moral book, but filled with lies. The resurrection points to Scripture being true. It's filled with promises that point to Christ and are fulfilled by Christ. If those promises and prophecies are made true by the resurrection, then all the other promises of God in His Holy Word, whether it's, you know, He'll never leave us or forsake us, or how His plans are greater than our plans, how, how God promises the good and protection of those of His people, how, how God will provide in our times of need, those promises, and many more like them, we can trust that they are true and will come to fruition in God's timing as well, because God fulfilled the ultimate promise of resurrection in Jesus Christ. Scripture only has authority if the resurrection is true. And we know and believe it to be true because it is God's holy word. Again, he does not lie. So if you deny the resurrection, if you take the authority of, of, of a secular thought on the re- resurrection as opposed to holy scripture, you make God to be a liar. And if he is a liar about the resurrection, comfort and what assurance do you have about the promises therein? We don't have these promises without the resurrection. They're only fulfilled because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So the resurrection points to scripture. Now, lastly, the resurrection promises God's salvation. The resurrection promises God's salvation. If the resurrection validates scripture, then we know that it fulfills the promises of salvation written therein. Going back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul continues in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, whereas by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as Paul said earlier, because Christ was resurrected, we have the assurance that we are being made alive in Him. The resurrection was a sign that Christ's payment for our sins on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Christ was not raised, it would mean that he was just another sinful man who died on a Roman cross. But because he was raised, it means that his righteousness was sufficient to be imputed, credited to us, placed on us, so that we might stand justified and righteous before a holy God. This is why Paul says earlier in, in that First Corinthians passage, and if Christ has not been raised, you, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Because without the resurrection, it means that Jesus was not righteous, not perfect, worthy of the death that he died. Listen, all the, all, all the good that Jesus did in his lifetime, again, his ministry here on earth, his, his suffering on the cross, the wrath of God that he experienced, all of it would have been in vain if he didn't rise from the grave because he would have just been another sinner dying a sinner's death. But because God raised him from the dead, it was a sign of his righteousness. His worthy and acceptable sacrifice that was sufficient to appease the wrath of God. Therefore, our means of salvation is sealed in Christ's resurrection. And not just our justification, but our sanctification as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says... For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And in verse 17 it says, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ enables us to no longer live for ourselves or to live for sin, but rather to live as a new creation in Christ, no longer a slave to sin, able to obey the, obey the commands of God and be sanctified from glory to glory. And ultimately, the resurrection promises our final home and hope of salvation, glorification. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3-5 to says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, unperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded, guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have this hope of 
tomorrow, this hope of a life after this life. Only because Christ was raised from the dead. Church, do you realize why the resurrection matters? Because we are dead without it. We remain dead without it. Death remains a threat to our human existence, to our eternal existence. Eternal separation from God. No hope of seeing our loved ones in the faith who have gone before us. No hope of escape from our sin. No future glory where there is no more pain or suffering or tears. Or yet being in the presence of our holy God. If the resurrection did not happen, we have no living hope. But because Christ was raised, we can boldly proclaim in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ conquered the grave, because he rose, we too can, can, can rise with him not having to fear death. Not having to fear the wrath of God in death. So the resurrection is important, it's crucial, it's at the crux of our faith because it proclaims God's sovereignty, it, it points to God's scripture, and it promises God's salvation. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this time as we close. Those statistics that I, I, I read out earlier is truly heartbreaking. 66% of all believers, all, only 66% believe in the resurrection and even less the biblical account of that resurrection. In a time where millions of people have died because of this virus, and where it seems like the days keep getting longer and darker, and, and people are looking for hope, it's so heartbreaking to think that there are believers or, or brothers and sisters who, who are in the church who do not cling on to the greatest hope that we have, the resurrection. In times, in these fearful times, it's it's heartbreaking to think that there are those in the church that who follow Christ because of some good moral character or because of the stories in Scripture, but because but not because of some eternal hope or some everlasting life that they can that is promised through his resurrection. Going back to that passage that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, in this life if our hope in Christ is only good for you know how we how we live righteous lives, if, if our hope in Christ is only good for how we live good moral lives or how we obey God in this life. If our hope in Christ is only good for this life, 
in this life alone, we are of all people most to be pitied.
not just in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proclaims that the work is done and is satisfied. I pray, O oh Lord, that hearts would turn to you this evening, that hearts would be convicted by your truth, your Holy Spirit this evening, and that life changed by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ would occur this evening. The same spirit who rose Christ from the grave with, with blossom, with flourish in the lives, in the hearts, in the minds of your children this evening. That regardless of what crisis that we face, whatever darkness, whatever pandemic, whatever fears, whatever hopeless situation that we come across, we can truly sing at, from the bottom of our hearts as the hymn says that, that we can face tomorrow. That all fear is gone because you hold the future, that life is worth living because Christ Jesus, you live. Help us, Lord. Help our unbelief. Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.